Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. At the end of Jesus' life, the night before he died, Jesus said to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. But in a sense, you could say, how could Jesus say that? There were still hundreds of lepers who needed healing, prostitutes who needed the restoring power of Christ's love, and Pharisees who needed to be rebuked for their moralistic arrogance that blinded them to their need of a Savior. Yet he was certain that he had brought glory to the Father by accomplishing the mission marked out for him. Jesus had to wrestle with all the incessant demands that cried out for his energy and attention, just as we have to in the 21st century. But he stayed focused on his mission. This episode examines how. Thanks for joining us today for Season 2, Episode number 43 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. Last week, we examined three powerful reasons why faithfulness to Christ's calling requires intentionality. First, Adam and Eve were not created to be on vacation in paradise. God explained to them that they were created to shape, to impose their will upon creation, using five action verbs to communicate to them their responsibility. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over creation. So at the core of humanness is the calling to order our lives and shape our surroundings. Secondly, we saw further that Jesus restated the original calling of Adam and Eve to spread righteousness over the earth. In the words of Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. By definition, the word seek, we saw, requires intentionality, meaning to pursue, to go after. It means deciding to move towards a goal, whether it is seeking a better paying job or the quickest route to the shopping center. It means not being preoccupied, says Jesus earlier in Matthew 6, by the fear of what others think of us, by the love of control that money gives us, or by everyday worry. In contrast, says Jesus, your energy and focus are to be upon spreading Christ's righteous rule over every aspect of your life and beyond your own life through those you influence in the world around you. And then thirdly, we saw last week that our core motivation as Christ followers, that is loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, requires intentionality for one reason, and that is that Jesus is crystal clear that his love language is obedience to his commands. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. When you love someone, you find out what pleases him. Active devotion to knowing and thinking through how to implement what Jesus commanded of us in our everyday lives is the only path to true allegiance to our Lord. Such devotion requires a game plan. Last week, we also did a brief drone flyover of Jesus' three-year ministry, observing how he constantly took charge of his life, guiding and shaping it according to the mission he was assigned by the Father. And now we want to put on the zoom lens for a close-up look at how Jesus stayed focused on the Father's mission for him. From Mark 1, verses 32 through 39. 
That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Well, on Saturday night, sundown marked the end of the Sabbath, so the whole town of Capernaum made its way to Peter's home, which was less than a 100 feet from the synagogue. Earlier that day in the synagogue, the people had seen Jesus' striking display of power in casting out an unclean spirit. Perhaps word had also gotten out about Jesus' healing of Peter's mother-in-law just that afternoon. So Mark tells us, quote, the whole city was gathered together at the door. Luke tells us that Jesus laid his hands on every one of those who was sick, healing them. Finally, Jesus turns in for the night. But while he catches a few winks, many of Capernaum's town folk excitedly head out in the dark to nearby towns to tell their sick or paralyzed aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends about Jesus' miraculous healing power. Sunday, Jesus' first day of the work week in that culture, was about to become more chaotic for Jesus and his disciples than Saturday evening had been. But incredibly, Jesus was nowhere to be found. In fact, even more incredibly, when the disciples do find Jesus, he says, no, 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 we're moving on to the next town. What? Jesus had found a quiet time of the day and a quiet place where he could shut out the world to reflect upon his mission with his commander-in-chief, the Father. In fact, this was the pattern of Jesus' life. Later in Jesus' ministry, after he cleansed a leper, Luke writes, But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus continually withdrew to a place where he could shut out the world to reflect upon his mission and undergird it with prayer. We know he undergirded his mission with prayer because he taught us to undergird our mission to seek first the reign of Christ's righteousness by praying, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We also know Jesus bathed his mission in prayer because he told us so. He said to Simon, 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 behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, back in Mark 1, during the early morning hours in Capernaum, in those quiet moments of reflection with his CO, how did Jesus know that he needed to adjust his game plan and move on to the next town? How did he know that he needed to keep healing from getting in the way of preaching and focus less on healing. That is the decision that Jesus' words conveyed. 
He said, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons, Mark tells us. We are not told how Jesus decided in prayer that he should move on to the next town to preach. But there is a logical explanation. Just before he had arrived in Capernaum, Jesus had been in Nazareth, where he had gone to his boyhood synagogue, opened the scrolls to the great description of the Messiah given by the prophet Isaiah. He read it and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here are the words from Isaiah revealing the messianic job description quoted by Jesus. They'll sound familiar. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, that's Messiah in Hebrew and Christos in Greek, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, which Jesus claimed to fulfill, is the good news, the gospel of Adam's kingdom being set free from its slavery to Satan, sin, and death, and the kingdom of Christ's righteousness, wholeness, taking its place. These words from Isaiah picture total restoration, both spiritual and physical, where the curse upon Adam's kingdom for his sin, earth, causing sickness, pain, and death, is reversed. Because the coming of Christ inaugurates a new spiritual kingdom and the renewal of everything broken by sin, this renewal portrayed by Isaiah is both spiritual and physical. The Messiah exhibits both word ministry and deed ministry, the word being the primary weapon in the spiritual battle, but equally important is the Messiah's deed ministry, demonstrating mercy to the poor, sick, and dying. So the job description of the Messiah is to fix everything broken, both spiritually and physically. That is what the phrases used in the prophecy of Isaiah convey. We read, good news is proclaimed to the poor. Whether the oppressor of the poor is the injustice of sinful men or a man's own sinful nature leading him to make destructive choices, Christ's kingdom will set the poor free. We read, proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus casting out of demons is a visible picture that the Messiah has come to overthrow the evil one and a reference to our race's slavery to sin being broken. Recovery of sight to the blind clearly points to Jesus fixing the broken, physical world. To set at liberty those who are oppressed may refer to the oppression of all three tyrants by their own sinful nature or the unjust oppression of others' sinful nature by Satan and the demonic host or by incurable disease, paralysis, and death. All are overthrown by Christ's restoration of Adam's fallen, diseased kingdom. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee, which was to require all the individual parcels of the promised land in Israel to be returned to their original owners 
every 50 years. This was never followed. But the concept celebrated that no matter how badly we mismanaged our lives or how much we were oppressed by injustice, our inheritance will still come to us. It is a picture of the grace of Messiah Jesus overcoming sin and its consequences. Well, what does this detailed description of the Messiah's mission have to do with Jesus' prayer time in the wilderness outside of Capernaum? I believe he was wrestling with the balance of his word and deed ministries. His word ministry, preaching, his deed ministry being healing. His healing late into Saturday evening was not only an expression of our Lord's love and mercy for those suffering, it also portrayed the kingdom of Jesus that he was inaugurating where all bodies are made whole. Nevertheless, Jesus tweaks his mission, saying it is time to move on to other villages, and he adjusts his focus away from healing to preaching primarily. This snapshot of the sun rising over Jesus at prayer reveals Jesus modeling a foundational principle for his followers, the need to regularly find a time to get away to a quiet place and shut out the world to review our mission with our CO. You and I might say, that's great, but I just can't get up from my job and go into the wilderness or shut out my busy family, especially since my wife and kids need more of me not less of me. But what if, all along, God created this world with a designed cycle to go hard for six days, but then take a day to rest, reflect on our mission, re-energize, and refocus? Could Sunday be the place to steal at least one hour? Let's listen to God's wisdom about the creation of the seventh day. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I believe that one of the great tragedies of Christianity today is that for the most part we are shaped by one or the other of two imbalanced views of the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. One view argues that the fourth commandment is part of the Old Testament law and therefore not relevant for Christians. This view misunderstands the various categories of Old Testament law. The ceremonial law, which had to do with feast days and purification rituals, was designed to point us to God's holiness and, according to Hebrews, is fulfilled in Christ. The second Old Testament category of law was civil. Such laws spelled out justice for society. They were specific to Israel's unique calling to be a theocracy. Most Christians believe that so far as a nation patterns its laws after the general equity of these laws, it will be blessed, with the exception of laws like the death penalty for adultery or Satan worship. The third category of Old Testament law is the moral law, which is summarized by the Ten Commandments. New Testament teaching reinforces nine of the Ten Commandments, proving that the moral law of the Old Testament does come into the New Testament. 
The fact that God puts the fourth commandment right up there with you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, you shall have no other gods before me, makes it problematic for Christians to just ignore this commandment. Yet, it is the fourth commandment that is the one commandment not repeated in the New Testament. The opposite view imports the fourth commandment, which was originally given just to one nation, into the New Testament era and demands that Christians all over the world make the same commitment to obeying the fourth commandment that was required of Israel. Christian, you must obey this commandment, which says in full, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I am personally committed to obeying the moral principle behind the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I believe the Bible teaches us to set apart the Lord's Day in some way. That is what the word holy means, to set apart. The early Christians changed the day of worship from the Saturday Sabbath of Judaism to Sunday, the Lord's Day, because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. However, the early Christians did not rest from work on the Lord's Day. They would have had they thought it was a moral imperative. But it was like our Monday, the first day of their work week. So they met for worship after work, which explains, by the way, why Paul talked until midnight in Acts chapter 20. We read on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them until midnight. Eutychus, sitting at the window, being overcome by sleep, fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul then raises him from the dead. Sunday, the first day of the week, has been celebrated by Christians as the day of worship since the Sunday of Christ's resurrection. But the day of worship was not a day of rest until 300 years later when Constantine made Sunday a day of rest in the Roman Empire. I believe there is both a compelling moral principle revealed to us in the fourth commandment and a compelling creation principle. Above all, I believe that the whole concept of Sabbath, a day for rest, reflection, renewal, and recalibration, was designed by God to be a great blessing to us. Some Christians have turned it into a legalistic rule about whether you can eat out at a restaurant or watch football games on Sunday afternoons. Believe me, I know this because I was one of them. But the fourth commandment, as all God's commandments are, is given to us by God as a great blessing, which is why Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The compelling moral principle is, in my view, to set apart in some way the first day of the week as the day of Christ's resurrection and worship him. The way the church has done that is by worshiping on that day. When I must travel on the Lord's Day, I still try to set it apart by giving God at least some special moments to adore Him. However, it is the compelling creation principle of setting apart at least one day in seven for physical rest, reflection, renewal, and recalibration 
that most attracts me to the wisdom of the fourth commandment. What if God deliberately designed a day of rest, the cessation of his work assignment for us, first for physical rest? French factory workers concluded that there may be a ratio of exertion to rest built into the physical world. When they tried a 10-day work week, the machinery broke down, causing them to return to one day in seven, shutting down the factory. Could this rest day also be to enjoy and reflect upon our work? When Genesis 2 tells us that God rested from his work of creation, resting had to mean more than just taking a break from the exertion of working. God doesn't get tired from working. Resting must imply, at the very least, reflecting upon and delighting in what he had made. Could a rest day also be for renewal of our emotional and spiritual energies as well as just our physical strength? Could a day to rest also be for recalibrating our efforts to fulfill our mission as Jesus later did outside of Capernaum? Last week, I stressed that no Super Bowl coach would step onto the field without a game plan. I mentioned that the generic game plan that our ministry offers men is one that breaks down our mission into three callings. First, the call to Christ to enjoy a love relationship with him. Second, the call to be like Christ, growing into Christ-like heart attitudes. Third, the calling to exercise dominion for Christ, implementing Christ's agenda in our roles as husband, father, employee, employer, neighbor, church member, steward of resources, and ambassador of the kingdom. By the way, we have a tool in our bookstore to help you design your own game plan for achieving these objectives. But there might be something dumber than playing a Super Bowl game without a game plan. That is, having a game plan and never looking at it during the game. Luke tells us that the busier Jesus' life became, the more he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. What if you made or renewed a commitment to use the gift of rest God has given to us each week? What if you committed to finding one hour sometime on Sunday, before church, in the afternoon, evening, or before you went to bed, to do what Jesus did, meet with your commander-in-chief? What would happen if you set apart this time to bask in his unconditional love for you, no matter how much you failed him this past week? Pour out your needs to him and the needs of your loved ones. Receive fresh inspiration to honor him with your life and had time to tweak how you were trying to prove fruitful for him. Is there any better way to honor your heavenly Father? By this is my Father glorified, said Jesus, that you bear much fruit, and so prove that you are my disciples. summarize this episode after reviewing the necessity of intentionality to bring about spiritual fruit covered last week, we studied a still-life photo of Jesus outside of Capernaum before the sun was up, the night after he had been inundated with those needing to be healed, noting that Jesus had chosen a quiet time to get away and a quiet place to which to retreat. The text strongly implies that Jesus was wrestling with how to balance his messianic calling in Isaiah 61 to both the ministry of deeds of mercy and the ministry of the word. 
I personally suspect that Jesus was meditating on Isaiah 61 as he wrestled with this description of his mission. Whether his mind was on Isaiah 61 is uncertain, but what is certain is that he was prayerfully deciding to adjust his mission to leave Capernaum and to focus more on preaching. This is the pattern that we who are followers of Jesus are to emulate. But where do we find time to go into the wilderness? Maybe the time is already there. In the creation design of working hard for six days and then accepting and using the gift of Sabbath rest, a time set apart each week to rest, reflect, renew, and recalibrate. For further prayerful thought, number one, do you agree that one thing dumber than not having a game plan for the Super Bowl might be having a game plan but never looking at it during the game? How is this analogy of our efforts to implement Christ's agenda in each sphere of our lives a fair analogy or an unfair one? See your show notes for more questions. Today's podcast mentions a tool to help guys formulate a game plan for their own lives called the Focus Notebook. You can see the show notes for a link to help you find out more about this resource. Next week, as we finish this three-week series, Shaping Life by Christ's Priorities, we'll examine the argument that God never intended for a Christian man to fight his spiritual battles alone, and touch upon a strategy that thousands of men have used to forge closer brotherhood connections with one or two guys who have their back. Thanks for listening today. If this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by equipping them and inspiring them each week while they commute or work out.